Okay, well, let's pray and we will jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for those who are here. Lord, we pray for those who are sick and ask for their healing. Lord, we ask and pray that you would grow and strengthen our faith in who you are and our ability to share um, share our faith with others, Lord. We just ask that for this lesson, but we also ask it in general for this apologetics class that you would grow us in knowing what we believe and why we believe it and being able to share it with others. Lord, we pray your your favor and blessing on this time, our conversation. We pray your favor and blessing on our time of worship today in a little while as a church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I wanted to start off today by reviewing what we talked about last time. Since there isn't a book um, that we're going through, I thought it would be helpful to sort of have like a weekly recap for us so that we can help solidify what we talked about. So, Pastor Jonathan opened us up last week um, talking about what is apologetics, why do we do apologetics, and how do we do apologetics, right? So, but let's just kind of jam on that a little bit as by way of review. So what what is apologetics? You don't have to give me his definition word for word or anything, but what did we talk about? What we, How would you put it in your words? What's apologetics? Well, the word itself means response. Yeah. And so okay. we're learning to give a response for the faith that's in us. Yeah. Yep. So Pastor Jonathan talked about this word apologia, this Greek word, and it means uh, a reasoned defense, right? You're giving a, an answer to those who ask you, right? We talked, um, he, he mentioned several verses, several ex- like sort of example verses from the book of Acts where Paul is giving a defense. But then, of course, we had that um, main verse from First Peter 3, uh, 15 and 16. Uh, what else, how else would you, we'll look at that verse a little bit more. How else, is there anything else you would say? Well, how would you define apologetics? I think we can like, define a little bit as like an evangelistic tool. Sure. It's just like defense, but seeking to win people for Christ using uh, reasonable arguments and understanding. Yeah. Let's save that for the why, because that moves us squarely from the what to the why. But that's part of it, right? What are we trying to do? What is apologetics for? Um, yeah. Well, let's look at this verse again, shall we? If there's no other thoughts on that one. Um, so he said, Jonathan said, as a definition, we got to know what we believe, why we believe it. And then apologetics is being able, being ready to give an answer for that. The short version is a defense for what we believe and why. There's a lot of different definitions sort of out there, but that's kind of a generic one. I think partly it depends on your approach to apologetics, um, how you define it. It's going to be based somewhat on your approach. Um, and we'll talk about some of those approaches in a little bit, but that's a good working definition. Um, I was, I started listening to an three minutes in, so don't ask me if it's good yet or not, but um, it's a little message that Vody Bauckham did on using the um, confession as a means of apologetics. Mm-hmm. And he comes at it from a presuppositional approach, I think, um, because he quoted Cornelius Van Til for his definition of apologetics. So um, there's different ways we can divide it. But one of the things that, that Van Til said, I'm not going to get it precisely, but sort of giving a defense for the Christian life and, sh- and showing why other philosophies of life are, are wrong. Um, that's the gist of, of what they were saying. So uh, a defense for what we believe and why we believe it. This key verse, if you have your Bibles, is 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And I'll just read it again here for us. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So 
Uh, Jonathan talked last week about how apologetics begins with a personal faith. Sort of hard to defend what you believe if you don't believe it, right? <laughs> so um, knowing what you believe, why you believe it. And really centering in on this first little phrase in First Peter, in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Um, that's where apologetics starts. Um, always being ready to make a defense for those who ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Um, it's interesting here, I think, that the defense that we're making is specifically related to our hope. And that starts to get to the evangelistic focus, if you will. But I don't think it's merely evangelistic, right? Um, and then apologetics is done with gentleness and respect, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. So, um, but notice that he says, this is how we keep a good conscience. So there's a way to do apologetics, apparently. There's a way to defend the faith where if we don't do it with gentleness and respect, then at the end of the day, we won't have a good conscience because we haven't done it in the manner in which God requires us to do apologetics. Does that make sense? So merely being argumentative, you could have the, the most well-reasoned defense of the faith, but if you're a total jerk, you don't have a good conscience at the end of the day because you didn't do it in the manner in which God requires. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the of the, the two verses are to speak first to Christ and then our, our conduct in relation to Christ. Yep. Um, apologetics is we, we, we associate it so much with evangelism, and, and it's obviously it's true, but it also reinforces our own faith. Yes. I really believe this. I need to make those arguments because we confront new experiences, new data points every day. Yep. And so, uh, you know, we are constantly. The world views of, of man's word, which is still in us, and God's word, which we're trying to, you know, cohere with and, and be transformed into, sanctified to. We, we have that battle waging even still as believers. And so in order for us to be able to properly resolve those conflicts, we need to engage in apologetics within ourselves. And Bodhi, in, in speaking of not only why what we believe is right, but what others believe is wrong. That second piece is, is polemics, which is a cousin of apologetics. Yeah. So those two good points that I wanted to make, and especially the first one that you were making, the fact that if, if we're thinking about this is moving us now, okay, so we talked about like what is apologetics. This moves us into the solidly into the why do we do apologetics? And I think the easiest way to think about this is we do apologetics really for two reasons. One, we do it to help our witness to non-believers, right? We help, it's an evangel, it's part of our evangelistic efforts. That's one reason. But the other reason that I think is just as important is the one that Dan is talking about. And that is to strengthen our faith as Christians. So C.S. Lewis is often quoted and he's quoted for saying something like, uh, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason than to refute bad philosophy, <laughs> right? It's like we we need this as believers uh, to help, right? So apologetics is good, not just for us. Like, I, okay, so we do apologetics. We come here on Sunday mornings to learn these facts and, and to be, get these truths and these arguments and these evidences and this logic and all of this. That's helpful for us. It's also helpful for us helping other Christians who are struggling, right? So, so when we think about apologetics and we're thinking about giving a reasoned defense for the faith or, or, or giving reasons for why we believe what we believe, we shouldn't be thinking merely in terms of, of being able to do that with non-believers. We should also be thinking about doing that with believers who happen to be struggling in area X, Y, Z in their faith in order to help strengthen them in their faith. So yeah, it helps strengthen us, but also we use it for helping to strengthen others. You think about parents helping and strengthening their kids, right? Um, yeah, so that's a really, really good point. And then the other thing that you said, Dan, um, is sort of what Jonathan was talking about last week, offense and defense. We think, we think in 
sort of two terms, um, offensively and, and defensively. Okay, so so why do we do apologetics? Last week, Jonathan had this um, pithy little phrase that I liked and I wrote down, conversation with a view toward transformation. I like that. That's really good. Um, because it's not merely trying to get some knowledge downloaded into somebody else's head or into our head. We're trying to bring transformation. Whether that transformation is that person takes a step closer and eventually puts their faith in Christ, or that person's a believer and they strengthen their faith in Christ. This transformation, though, a lot of it is going to be on the believe level. If that makes any sense. So oftentimes when we think about application as Christians or transformation, we immediately think about living a different way. That's true. But at least half of what God, like in terms of application, when you read the Bible is I need to think a different way. I need to believe this truth. Um, And so in this way, we're thinking about transforming minds with truth. So broadly, then we have two goals to strengthen our faith and others faith to have a better grasp of what we believe and why. So there's a discipleship purpose and to strengthen our witness, to be equipped to share our faith with other people. So we can think of that as an evangelistic purpose. And when you put those two things together, we're talking about making disciples. That's what that's what making disciples includes evangelism and discipleship. Both of those pieces bringing someone to faith, and once they're a Christian, helping them live their faith, right? Discipling them. But Jonathan actually mentioned four reasons, and I don't know if you're going to be able to remember all of, call all of these to mind. Um, the first one that he talked about was vindication or proof. Do you remember that? Um, that's the first reason why we do this. And here we're thinking about developing a positive case for Christianity, And this strengthens our faith as well. I think it's important to note here that our job isn't to prove Christianity is true, but we can show that it's credible. We can show that it has sufficient ground. There's sufficient grounds to believe what we believe, that our faith isn't unreasonable, as we'll talk about in a little bit. Hopefully we can get there. Um, Our faith is not blind. Then he talked about defense in order to answer objections to our faith. So you can think of that person out there is launching questions or accusations, attacks against us. So we're playing defense. We're responding to those things, answering those, clarifying misunderstandings is part of that. Clarifying misinterpretations of what Christianity is. There's just a lot of bad beliefs out there for what Christianity is and what it entails. Part of our job is like saying, well, no, 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 that's not actually what we believe. <laughs> like the Trinity is not uh, God, Mary, and Jesus. <laughs> you know, you know, like that's not, we're, no. <laughs> so we're going to clarify that, right? So um, there's a whole bunch of bad beliefs out there about Christianity. And part of our job is helping to clear those away. Then offense was the third thing. Um, that's where we challenge non-believers' beliefs. And here, think primarily in terms of asking questions. This is where we want to help begin to show. So on the first hand, we're, we're vindication and proof, we're trying to show how Christianity, uh, the Christian way of life is good, right? Positive proofs for that, etc. Defense is answering objections, clarifying misunderstandings. Offense is now like starting to show why their philosophy of life doesn't work, inconsistent, um, self-contradictory, etc. Um, and that cannot stand alone. So like, it's, you just have to think like, it's not enough simply to tear down somebody else's philosophy. <laughs> you know, like that doesn't bring them to Jesus. It also doesn't establish Christianity as true. So part of this is to think like, we're not going to do one of these things alone. These are all tied together. And then the fourth piece that Jonathan talked about is persuasion, bringing people to the point of, of faith. Um, I think, yeah, we talked, we nibbled around this last time, I think, where I don't think that we should be thinking in terms of, well, I have to establish every one of these arguments before I share the gospel with them. I think rather we should be thinking, we're going to share the simple gospel message with people up front 
And then as objections are raised, questions are asked, we are ready to address those things as they come. Does that make sense? I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking like, okay, in order to do evangelism, I have to be ready to prove the existence of God with the cosmological, teleological, and and moral argument. And I have to be able to establish why creation is better than evolution. And I have to, you know, like, no, 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 no. We want to be able to just know the gospel, trust the word, lead with those things. And as people ask or raise objections, then be ready to answer those objections and to show that like, no, actually, no. I mean, there's a good answer for that. And yes, reasonable, like the, the faith Christian, the Christian faith is reasonable. You're going to ask a question. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if this answers this at this point, so if it doesn't, you know, go through this first Sure. Um, but the idea is, so I, I like to watch Great Comfort mm -hmm. because it's, for me, like a really good example of this in action. And when I, someday I'd like to be like him <laughs> in how he presents the gospel, but he emphasizes the need <coughs> to, uh, for when you're talking to non believers, the need to be able to understand. He said, a lot of times we present the gospel and give them Jesus or we don't we're not properly discerning they don't need the grace yet they need the law mm -hmm. to yeah. understand their i know you know that mm -hmm. they, to understand that they're sinners and that they have a need for that yeah and so how uh are we gonna fit that piece into what we're doing here Is that gonna in terms of apologetics yeah well i would say that's part of your evangelistic witness and part of your gospel sharing so if you're leading your gospel presentation with Jesus and grace, you've, you've, you've only got half the message. And I mean, you're the queen of illustrations, in my opinion. Um, nobody knows they need a doctor until they know they're sick. Right. So if you ask me, like, are we going to spend a lot of time talking about how to share the law with people? That's not part of our plan for APOL. That's, I put that more in the camp of this is included in how you share the gospel. Right. 100% necessary. Um, and maybe there's a point where we take a week and we talk about what is the gospel and how do we share it? Um, I, I wouldn't put that directly in the, uh, what is it like? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? No. Um, the discipline of apologetics. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, um, the illustration of the sons of Issachar, knowing the times in which we find ourselves and then respond accordingly. Yeah. The gospel has been presented differently throughout the ages and throughout the ge different geographic cultures and what have you because the challenges in the, the, the priorities of uh, the, the people of those times are. Uh, change and that's broadly speaking obviously the gospel ultimately is very personal it's a person that comes to Christ not a culture the culture comes as more people come and so the the challenge in my view that we are presented with today that is often uh, perhaps an exaggeration but still not without validity we are in a post-truth society people aren't interested they're not necessarily persuaded by facts at least not initially but they are persuaded, and they're not necessarily, but they are more persuaded by conduct. And, and that, that sense of love and observing one's character over time, especially as they go through trials. Um, and so that becomes a, a more significant matter of persuasion. And even in our own relationships, we may, uh, I know through the years in our marriage, for example, I would be convinced I was right on, on the points, but I had a really awful attitude. And Candy would have a better attitude, even though I disagreed with her, for example. And her attitude persuaded me <laughs> to question my perspective. And ultimately, like, okay, right, I want to So you gave up the truth for Candy because she had a good attitude? <laughs> 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 I was willing to allow my perspective, then I was I invited the challenge. Yes. Rather than resisting the challenge. Yeah. No, there's a lot in there that's really good. I think uh, we'll talk about the fact 
just briefly on it is a key. We we do need to recognize we live in a culture that tends to reject absolute truth, and we need to be ready to respond to that. And um, we talked a little bit last week about our life and how that adds credibility to our witness. That brings us into the how. Thank you for continually transitioning me forward. I appreciate that. Um, it makes my job easy. Um, so the, the how, one, one phrase came to mind last week as we, were, as we were talking about the how of gentleness and respect is how do we do, how do, we do apologetics with confidence, but without arrogance? Because arrogance is not the same thing as confidence. You can be confident and humble at the same time, right? Knowing you're right doesn't have to make doesn't have to make you arrogant. Does it make sense? Um, and we'll keep coming back to that. So doing this with gentleness and respect. Um, Jonathan ended with a long list of like ten things. Um, what were in terms of how do we do apologetics? Can you guys remember any of those? Just just some of the key things for how we do apologetics. Just less popcorn, whatever you can remember. Yes, asking questions was on the list. What else? Without hypocrisy. So that's what Dan is talking about. Your life better match what you're talking about. That's good. Uh, we, it is a little bit count, uh, counterproductive to present a, a savior whose who's, uh, way is gentle and lowly and then not be gentle and lowly. <laughs> uh, so come to Jesus. He's gentle and lowly. No, like do it now. <laughs> Wait, what? What else? Other keys for how we do this. With gentleness and respect, right? That's right in the verse. And I don't know exactly know how to phrase this, but being in communication with the person to whom you're speaking on a on a on a personal level. Really listen to what they're saying and see where they really are instead of thinking what you're going to say next. Yeah, that's two things that Jonathan stressed last week. The first was relationship. The second that you're getting at is this active listening. I'm hearing you say, is this what you meant? If I understand you correctly, is this what you meant? You know, that sort of making sure that you understand before you respond. Incidentally, if you're not doing that in your marriage, that's a good thing to do in your marriage or any other relationship that you might have with a brother or sister. Um, most of what makes good communication begins with good listening. Okay. What else? Anything else? Basically, be like Kari. Be like Kari? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening to this uh, after the fact, you're going to have to ask Pastor Jonathan about that. You can find his email and phone number on our website, <laughs> www.gfc1.org. <laughs> um, all right. I think um, the last one I'll just mention is focusing on major concerns, always moving towards Jesus. Not getting bogged down in the argument, but looking for ways to move towards Jesus and then prayer. Um, so, all right. So much for our review. Let's move on to some new. Yeah, go ahead. Conversations that happen in this apologetic realm when it's a conversation. Yeah. Um, and my experience has been more in the truly questioning realm. I mean, where I wasn't. I wasn't meaning to be on the defensive or offensive. Like yeah. the person was coming and going, tell me yeah. what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. You're somebody that I think knows something. Please answer these questions. Yep. And that was that was just their they just needed more information. Mm -hmm. Um in their path towards Christ and the Holy Spirit was already leading them towards himself. I have not been in the 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 um professor on the stage with the kids popcorning all these, you know, just for the sake of trying to knock down all my 
my arguments. Like I've never been or with another person where I'm like trying to impose my thing, you know, what I believe on someone else and they're like throwing arguments back at me or just trying to knock me to pieces. Like I've never been in that situation, which is kind of how we sort of, I think, imagine apologetics is, <clears throat> oh, well, when these people ask these doubting questions, you can answer them like this. And like, that's just not been my experience. When people yeah. are asking questions, in my experience, they're asking questions because they really want to know yeah. a little bit more about Jesus. And, and um, they, uh, they are, they're pursuing the, the knowledge. Yeah. So it seems like there's two different two different. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many good things in there that I just, I just want to draw out just for the sake of clarity and for the class. Um, number one, it sounds like, and I agree with you, know your audience, <laughs> you know, like who, who am I talking to? Is this my friend or is this my neighbor who I have relationship with? Is this a complete stranger? And what's their heart? Are they genuinely seeking or are they not? Right. And, and you're, some of how we respond is going to depend on them. If they're genuinely asking questions and they just need more information, then that's how you go. But one thing I would want to caveat there and just, and maybe this is a clarifying thing is when we think about offense and defense, I don't want us to think about offense as sort of um, a harsh thing uh, or, a, or a grading thing, because I'm guessing that even when you're talking with someone who is more open and asking questions and wants answers, part of what you can do in that conversation even is also to explain like, and this is why, like, okay, so we believe all these things, but this is also why this doesn't work. We begin to see why these other worldviews don't make sense. Does it make sense? So you can do some of both offense and defense, no matter what kind of person you're talking to. Um, and it doesn't have to be like a, a real confrontational or uh, argumentative type of a conversation at all. Um, now, I will say that I have had the people who aren't, so open and receptive and really are asking the direct hard questions and coming at me with, well, the Bible is a contradiction here and the Bible has a contradiction here. And what about dinosaurs? And what about demons? And what about this? What about, and it's like very straightforward and there's not a ton of openness. If that makes any sense. Um, so I think, I think it's good to know your audience and know who you're talking to and our approach doesn't change. At the end of the day, if the person is more, I, don't, I mean, this is probably overstating the, stating it, but supposing they're more combative, we're still to treat them with gentleness and respect in how we do our apologetics, right? I mean, ideally, we would want to approach them with the same kind of openness, love, care as the first person that you were talking about, where it's quote unquote easier, not that it's easy, but you know what I mean? Um, so that's really good. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about, um, there's, I guess in apologetics, there are some different apologetic approaches to this. And so people, people come at apologetics, uh, in different ways based on, on what they believe. And I think there's probably some biblical rationale for all of these different approaches and i'll just put my cards out on the table up front and say two things number one i'm not an expert on any of these four approaches so i'm not teaching this as like a i've studied this deeply and i know all this information let's put this in the category of like survey and number two i think that I'm not in any of these four camps, but can see the usefulness of an integrated approach. So that's where we're going to, that's where I'm going to land the plane in just a few minutes after we talk about these. Does that make sense? So I'm going to say that again in just a few minutes, but anyway, so what are these four different approaches? They're, they're labeled in this way, classical apologetics, evidential apologetics, presuppositional apologetics, and fideist apologetics. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Do you think that's right? Fide, fide is the is the Latin word. So I'm assuming fideism sounds like 
eating delicious pastries or something. You win them to the faith with donuts. Um, that's the fifth approach. You just buy it. I mean, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And if you believe with your heart, I guess the way you should win men is with steak and bacon or something. Steak and bacon, apologetics. <laughs> Try this maple bacon, this maple glazed bacon. Mm, yes, I'm ready <laughs> to. <laughs> oh, how quickly we turn astray. All right, so first this classical approach. Um, and, and I think we see this some in how Paul, uh, we, we see repeatedly in the New Testament how Paul reasoned with people to try to persuade them of the truth of the gospel. Um, so the classical approach to apologetics emphasizes the use of reason and logic in determining the validity of truth claims. So, uh, and this material comes from two different places. One is a comprehensive guide to apologetics, and the other is a website. Um, and I can't remember the name of the website, but if you want, I can give it to you later. Um, so, the classical approach is emphasizing the use of reason and logic to determining the validity of truth claims uh, using logical criteria. Like, there are a bunch of these, but for example, the law of non contradiction. Um, the law of self-consistency, for example. Um, these are used both to refute the truth claims of non-Christians and establish the existence of God through theistic proofs. So think here in terms of trying to establish the existence of God, the cosmological argument, teleological argument, moral argument. We're going to talk about some of these things. Um, and then you can think of this method as sort of a two-step approach to apologetics. First, addressing a person's worldview issues and making a case for theism, uh, the worldview that affirms the existence of a creator, one creator God, and then presenting evidence, whether it's empirical, um, what you can see, or historical, that this particular God has revealed himself in Christ and in the Bible. So think of leading with logic, with reason, with philosophy first, and then moving on to other areas of evidence and argumentation. The classical apologist believes that despite the fall, despite the fact that humans are sinful, nonbelievers are still capable of understanding rational argument and that the spirit of God uses such arguments and evidence to help them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So people in this camp, who, who does apologetics this way? R.C. Sproul, C.S. Lewis, William Lane Craig, Norm Geisler would be examples of people in this camp. The second, yep. So does that then, uh, that approach exclude using the scriptures? Or I don't mean like you're trying to leave out the scriptures. No. You're trying to use reason that does not include using arguments from scripture. Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. It does not exclude that. Um, doesn't exclude it, but it, I mean, like, if you've heard people like William Lane Craig debates, yes. it's not usually the starting point. You know, like, if you, if this is like the huge mismatch, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, they had like Ken Ham and Bill Nye do some debates on TV. And it might be as a complete waste of time and not helpful because they were, they were talking, they weren't, there was no engagement. And so Ken Han just went, well, the Bible says, blah, 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 therefore, blah. and, you know, Bill Nye, I don't believe in the Bible. So, like, and so he was arguing just from a non-biblical standpoint, and they just, it wasn't a debate, it was just two people talking. But, um, so classical apologetics would engage, like, Bill Nye and say, well, here are the reasons why, the rational reasons why even a non-Christian set aside the Bible for a moment and any belief in Jesus, here's the logical reasons why it's reasonable to believe that there is a God. Now, is that the God of the Bible? We talk about that. Does that lead us to Jesus and salvation of the gospel? That's down the road. But let's, you know, they're building cases from logic and reason to establish that there is a God and trying to undermine or pick apart inconsistencies in an atheist's uh, you know, refusal to believe in, in such a thing. 
And then they'll build, they'll build from there. They're not starting with, well, the Bible says this, so it's true. Um, they'll get there eventually, but they're going to start like way over on the enemy's territory first. Say, well, look, even supposing you don't believe in the Bible, you can still make an argument for the fact that God, there is a God. And that is the most reasonable and rational, they would say rational, logical answer to some of these uh, things in the world that we see. So, Yeah, and part of that is there's a sort of a fundamental presupposition that I'll talk about here. For the classical person, they believe that the believer and the non-believer has some shared common ground yeah. in terms of the ability to reason and ration. Does it make sense? Um, all right, so let me continue, and we'll try to talk about, we'll try to, hopefully some of this will make sense as we get towards the end, and we can put some of these pieces together and then compare them a little. Um, the next is called evidential apologetics, and we see people doing this kind of apologetic in the Bible as well. So Jesus and Peter and John, they all gave evidence with a view to persuading people to believe. So, so we see Paul and others using reason and logic to try to persuade people to believe, but we also see some of these folks in the Bible using evidence to try to persuade people to believe. Um, so this defense or this approach defends and corroborates Christian truth by using empirical and historical evidence. They seek to ground the Christian faith primarily on factual data, data empirically and historically verifiable facts. So... Uh, the classical apologist begins with logical arguments, but evidential apologists will begin with evidence. The evidence doesn't necessarily constitute proof. Again, we're not going to be able to 100% prove Christianity, but it is sufficient to answer objections and to establish the credibility of the Christian faith, to show that the Christian belief is not unreasonable. Evidentialists consider the evidence for creation, the inspiration of the Bible, the divinity of Christ, in particular his resurrection from the dead, as part of an overall case for the reality of the Christian God. They would also look to, at material facts found in historical uh, events, documents, archaeological evidence, that sort of thing. Um, they don't reject logical arguments for God's existence. So it's not like we do only evidence and we don't do any logic. That's not what they're saying. But they don't want to put an overemphasis on that. So the evidential apologist believes that our focus should be on demonstrating evidence for Christ and his word to make a case for the Christian faith. So people in this camp would be Lee Strobel, Josh and Sean McDowell, Gary Habermas, John Warwick Montgomery, who I have no idea who that is. Um, do you know who that is? I don't know who that guy is. Um, anyway, the third one, the third camp, is presuppositional, the presuppositional apologist, or sometimes called reformed apology, apologists. Um, and here they're leading with, it's really hard to summarize this maybe in one sentence, um, and maybe you can help me out if, if you think of one. Um, but here they're leading with the fact that God is Lord, and God must enlighten people for them to understand, and that the, they presuppose the necessity of the Christian God to even do uh, reasoning and logic, <laughs> like uh, that, that those people are automatically borrowing from the Christian worldview. And so here, think of, of taking every thought captive to obey Christ, um, that sort of thing. So this approach to how we do apologetics argues that we must ground reason and facts on the truth of the Christian faith, rather than trying to prove or defend the faith on the basis of reason or facts. The rational and empirical approaches to establishing religious truth are doomed to fail because the fallen human mind and those approaches assume the self-sufficiency of human beings to use reason and to interpret facts independent of divine revelation. So for these folks, they're going to have a strong emphasis on the word and what God has said and, is, and the fact that God is Lord of all creation. He's the one who established things like truth and reason to begin with. Um, so apologetic, therefore, apologetic systems, they would say, based on such epistemologies as, you know, rational or evidential, they're both inadequate 
and inappropriate for defending the faith. They don't believe in any neutral common ground with non-believers. So they're going to aim down at the presuppositions of what the non-believers have and try to uh, get at those. So the presuppositional reformed apologist seeks to show that non-Christian belief systems cannot account for the validity of reason and fact and truth, but only Christian theism can. Um, so who, who are people in this camp? Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, Cornelius Van Til, uh, Greg Bonson, Jeff Durbin is like a modern person in this camp. Um, but I'll be careful here because at least in my experience of watching some of these people do apologetics, they're not opposed to logic and evidence in how they actually do it on the ground. Um, they're just, they have a different uh, emphasis in terms of starting point and what they're willing to allow for the non-believer and where they're at and what they, what they're capable of, etc. In my opinion, I think they, they stress the, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll come back to that. The last one, the fourth one is the uh, fideist approach. This one's probably the most confusing to me. Um, this approach is distinct because there is no rational justification or evidence that is needed for a defense. Um, one only needs to engage the non-believer with the scriptures and to let your life be an example. This isn't saying they don't argue that Christianity is irrational, uh, but the point is, is they want to emphasize the experiential, the need to have an encounter with God, to believe in God. So fideism derives from the Latin fide, it means faith. And the term is sometimes used pejoratively, negatively, that you just believe apart from any reasoning or evidence. Their approach is that human knowledge of truth and God are experiential. So an, an existential experience with God can't be grounded on a rational analysis or evidence that, that a faith experience or a personal encounter with God is what's really necessary to answer the non-believer. Um, so the fideist apologist argues from humanity's existential needs to the fulfillment of those needs in Christianity. They're emphasizing the personal experiential dimension of faith and religious commitment. Who's in this camp? Soren Kierkegaard, Karl Barth, and I'm not sure if you saw others. Uh, I don't remember I others in this camp. You know, presuppositional apologetics is um, going to tend to be a bit more confrontational because you're basically saying to the other person, your foundations are wrong. <laughs> and like, you don't even see it. I mean, essentially, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to undermine... Uh, uh, reveal to them the the foundation on which you're building your life and arguments in a way defense. So Fideus is going to combat it in a less confrontational way and more uh, kind of a bit more similar to what uh, Jamie, who was sitting over here, was saying last week, where he was talking about um, something along these lines of like a personal encounter with Jesus. Like beyond, behind all the arguments what trauma or pain or heartache or suffering or loss or hurt is keeping you from making this commitment. Let, let's talk about, you know, the forgiveness that we have in Christ and how that can help you be rid of your shame and guilt. So, um, you know, and this is why I, I know you're going to get an integrated, integrated approach. Outside of like ever rooting out the Bible, like you get sideways and you end up with sort of secret friendly church, like everyone's come to Jesus and we can whip you up with some great music and mood lighting. Uh, that's all you need kind of faith. Um, but there is something real, I mean, and, and very biblical about an appeal to our emotions. And there is a Holy Spirit encounter that goes beyond just a sequential sort of belief in a certain set of facts. So, and eventually you do have to have an experience with God. You do, <laughs> you do you like, like you, you do need to get there yeah. uh, in the end. I mean, like you need to be born again. You need to put your faith in Jesus. Like th these things are, that's real. That part's real. Yeah. Um, okay. So let me try to sort of talk a little bit more and then maybe we can have some space for questions in just a minute. Um, 
So trying to compare some of these, if we ask the question then, on what basis do we argue that Christianity is the truth? Or how should the apologists seek to lead non-Christians to the knowledge of Christianity as the truth? The classical apologist sees reason as the ground for apologetic argument. The evidentialist seeks to build a case for Christianity based on the facts and evidence. The presuppositional or reformed apologist contends that God's revelation of himself in Christ and his word is the proper ground for all thinking about reason, facts, and human experience. And the fideist apologist presents the existence or the experience of God, excuse me, the experience of God in Christ as self-justifying apart from argument. These approaches are based on different epistemologies, that is, theories of knowledge. How do we know what we know? These approaches, um, so the classical apologist takes a broadly rationalist epistemology. The evidentialist takes an empirical or fact-based epistemology. The reformed apologist is taking an authoritarian epistemology. So we know what we know because, of, because um, Christ and his word are the supreme authority. And the FDS is taking more of a subjectivist or experience-based epistemology. Now, I want to say that we can know things in all of these ways. It's not like we have to choose one, right? But we talked about this in systematic theology. When it comes to authority, sources of authority or sources of knowledge, scripture is always at the top, right? That's the foundation of everything else. It's our standard by which we measure how are we thinking, our reason, our experience, our tradition, our emotions, etc. right? So um, connected to these different epistemologies, then, are different beliefs about any kind of common ground or sh shared truth between Christians and non-Christians and the relationship between faith and reason. So when it comes to absolute truth claims that are made by Christians, we talked about this a moment ago, Dan brought this up. Many people in our culture today deny the idea of absolute truth. The classical apologist is going to argue that denying absolute truth is irrational. The evidentialist is going to argue that truth claims can be supported with facts. The presuppositionalist, the presuppositionalist will argue that all people at the bottom do believe in absolute truth. And they even presuppose truth all the time, but they suppress it. And the fideist will respond that truth is not a matter of propositional knowledge or facts, but it's a person who has to be known in relationship. So they're going to come at this question from different ways. So now let's talk a little bit about an integrated or blended approach. Um, though classical and evidential apologists believe that non-believers uh, are able to understand rational argument and truths, they agree that due to man's sinful nature, he's going to distort and refuse to embrace the truth. So even though a case for Christ and Christianity can be made, and ultimately a, proclama a proclamation of the gospel and the work of the spirit, that's necessary to bring a non-Christian to Christ. So the, the, the classical and the evidential person, focusing on reason, focusing on evidence, they still believe, like, yeah, there's going to be limits to what we can do here because man is sinful. Man, These are Christian people, right? The spirit has to work. And though a presuppositionalist knows that an unbeliever is not going to come to faith in Christ through rational argument, through empirical or historical evidence, they would still in practice make use of reason and evidence. And they do. So they're not, these things are not mutually exclusive. They would simply emphasize that there is no basis for truth apart from God. The point here is that there's overlap. I think there's a time and a place for each and it's probably best to take a more blended approach that uses all of these methods as a comprehensive approach. So we're going to be looking at this twofold authority on which Christianity stands, the Bible and the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking to the Bible itself, which is the word of Christ. We're going to see what kind of reasons it gives for why we should accept its claims about God, about the word, about Jesus. That's our ultimate foundation, not philosophy, not history, not science, not even human reason. But we're going to see how reason and evidence support the truth, the truth claims of, of Scripture. They don't establish the truthfulness of the Christian faith. I want to emphasize that. If Christianity is true, it's true because there really is a God. He really has revealed himself in Christ and his word. But reason and external evidence 
corroborates the claims of Christianity. That's the key. And that's because the God of the Bible is the God of creation. He's the God of time. He's the God of truth. So that means facts and history and science and logic. They're all going to necessarily correspond to what the Bible reveals because God is God of all. He's not just God of the Bible, God of faith. He's the God of the whole world. He, he, he created the whole thing. It's his world. So it's all going to fit together. Uh, this um, reason and evidence then does two things. First, they confirm the truths of the faith. They strengthen the faith of believers, right? Because it's pointing to the reliability of the scripture and the authenticity of Jesus. So these are the two things that we saw earlier again. And they also serve as powerful tools as witnessing to non-Christians. At the end of the day, we cannot argue someone into the faith. And I know you guys, you know this. God has to draw them to faith in Christ. So again, we share the gospel message first, even while we address a person's objections along the way. Now, what's interesting is I'm paraphrasing here from the comprehensive guide to apologetics, which is a class that text is a, they take the classical approach. So even the classical people who want to use reason and logic are admitting up front, Hey, we start with the gospel. <laughs> we, we need to share a, a gospel message with people, right? Despite the fact that what Jonathan said is true, they tend to not lead that way, but they're also saying, but we should lead that way. <laughs> right. Um, which I think is good. I think that's good. Uh, in Colossians 4, 6, Paul says this, um, to have gracious and salty speech so that you might know how to how you ought to answer each person. I think we need to remember apologetics has these two aims, to strengthen faith and then saving faith, bringing someone to Jesus. And that all of these methods can be useful to that end. But we got to know the person that we're talking to. Who are we talking to? Where are they at? What are they struggling with? How can we help them? If there's an obstacle in the way, let's try to get it out of the way for them, right? But ultimately, we're not depending on our arguments or our apologetics to save them. We remain dependent on God, his word, and the Holy Spirit to do that work. Does that make sense? Okay, so let me stop there for a second and just questions about that. Go. So, uh, some things that come to mind to me are... Uh, the list of uh, theologians and philosophers uh, that uh, are uh, members of the different four camps is we're, they're all coming from the Western tradition of, uh, of thinking, of philosophy. Uh, Francis Schaeffer in How Shall We Then Live? Uh, he, in each of the 10 parts, really examines the, the, the conflict of going back to Aristotle, one of the particulars versus the concepts. And if we, if we give emphasis on the particulars, we'll end in a certain place. If we give emphasis on the concepts, we end in a, in a different place. And so uh, this morphs then subsequently into the battle, in particulars of humanism, the concepts of, of the Western Judeo-Christian tradition that has informed a lot of the Reformation uh, that, that we experience in the, the rising up of the Enlightenment and so forth. And so, again, throughout that, and even to today, and even, I mean, this was in 1977, he makes predictions uh, of, you know, this, as this battle continues, we're going to see other kinds of conflicts come into play, and they have, uh, which is which I find interesting. Uh, another uh, thing is John Blanchard's book, um, Does God Believe in Atheists? Is, it's an interesting title, but it's basically a history of philosophy, of Western philosophy, and so forth. And so you see how uh, they build on each other in terms of. Uh, the different worldviews, what informed them, what events informed them, and so forth. Um, and I think that that is also helpful in engaging engaging this topic. So to put a cap on, on my thoughts on this is uh, the, the Fideist view is probably really important to today, but we have to be careful. We have to be careful of all of them because the Fideist view 
is probably formed the foundation of the emergent, you know, and some of these other uh, church movements that have put an emphasis on the experience and the feeling. It was important, however, to address, to scratch the itch of the culture coming out of uh, uh, the, the excesses of the 60s and the, you know, the, the appeal of the Jesus movement that really addressed issues and so forth. And so we have to be wise and discerning. Have you ever had a false itch where you've got just one of these itches and you scratch where you think the itch is, but it's not satisfying because the itch is actually somewhere else, but you're getting, it's referring somewhere. And that is what culture often presents us with as a church. It's presenting us with an itch in a certain place. We try to scratch it and it doesn't satisfy because the, the real issue is somewhere else. And so to understand what is the real issue, learn how to distill what are the controversies of the day and what camp or what combination of these um, uh, approaches will help to address it effectively. And obviously then you make adjustments because of the person as well. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna, yeah, I'll just quickly say, because we're running out of time. Um, in our day, emotionalism, emotivism is rampant. And so we have to be careful with the fideist approach because we can inadvertently feed into it. So it's useful, but we also need to be able to recognize, we have to be able to recognize and um, show people. In, in our day, I think one of the best things we can do is help show people why emotions is not a good way to base your <laughs> it's not reliable. Um, I don't want to move us back from post. I don't want to move us from postmodernism though to modernism, which bases everything on reason, because that's also not a solid place. We got to go all the way back to scripture as the only basis, right? Mm -hmm. So, anyway, go ahead, Brendan. Uh, I was just curious. We talked about apologetics being for the world, seeking to help encourage our faith, but also for the church and yeah. Do you think the approach that we take is any different in terms of these four approaches with like a brother or sister? We're still integrations. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that you brought this up because Jonathan and I were talking about this just actually this last week about us, about someone, right? Um, I think that at some point, it, it depends again on the, the Christian person that we're talking to. Is this Christian person having doubts and are they open and responsive to these things? Then, then yes, rational arguments and evidence can be super useful. But is this person over here, um, they've, heard these, they've heard all the evidence and their issue is a hardened heart? Then presuppositionalism is our greatest tool, right? Because it's like, no, you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. This is the truth. This is what God's word says. Um, the, the nice thing about someone, if, if someone claims Christ, right, they claim to be a Christ follower. Obviously, the word is going to have a different, it's an easier time for us to go to the word and say, hey, if you're Christian, this is our standard. This is the truth. And this is what you should be believing, et cetera, et cetera. If that makes any sense. So short answer is, yeah, I think there's a place for all of it, depending on the person, but possibly presuppositionalism might take a greater, um, you know, come to the forefront. So would this be considered presuppositionalism? Uh, I had a conversation with a guy one time, and we live in a really relativistic, highly absolute truth culture, right? And uh, so I asked him, how do I know? I know this is true, right? To tell their religions this again, and to say what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, Father, except through me, this is Jesus saying this. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, you have to believe what Jesus said is um, in order to take that as uh, um, is that presupposition? Yeah, it is because you're emphasizing that Christ is Lord. That's your starting point and you're not surrendering it. And I don't think we should ever. Um, the reality, like, okay, 
So we didn't get to the last three sections that I planned for today. So maybe we can just punt it down and I can start with that next week or whatever. But how do we, okay, so ulta at, at base, this is where the presuppositional I think gets it right. It really doesn't matter what any of us in this room believe. What's true is true because God exists and God has established it. Christ is Lord. That's true regardless of whether or not any of us in this room believe it. That's an objective fact. That doesn't ever change. Does that make sense? And so that's a solid, we don't ever want to let go of our foundation, that Christ and his word is our foundation ever. Does that make sense? And there's, a, there's more tied into that in terms of like, okay, how do you, presuppositionalism would, would, so yes, the short answer to your question is yes, that's presuppositionalism because you're saying, I know this is true because Christ said it and he's Lord, he's Lord of all, right? Now that might not convince the person and then you might have to do more work, right? How do you know that he's Lord of all? Well, the presuppositionists would say he's said it, he's revealed it. And their, their underlying belief, I think, would be um, the person that you're talking to knows that God exists, right? All people are without excuse because God has made himself known in this world. The ultimate problem is that the person is suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to believe that God exists or that Christ is Lord because they don't want to give up their sin because they're sinful. Does that make sense? So yes yes and both and yes yeah yep i think that's like a uh you know, when we talk about like the 10 ways to go about uh you know the how how to do apologetics and one of the things is to ask the questions and one of the roles of asking questions is to help people see that they are coming into this not as a purely objective observer fairly assessing the different religions of the world and you know they're bringing uh they have presuppositions yes. of a worldview that has already decided against god against christianity uh blinded themselves to to sin and reality and truth and everything else and asking questions especially the the better people at this are able to quickly reveal that and bubble that up to the surface um, to see what well, you're, you, you, you have a, an established worldview. It's just a crumbly, shaky mess. Um, Maybe. Yeah. Like one way that I've seen, um, one way that I've seen Jeff Durbin do this, like in practice is someone will, someone will make a truth claim. And he will say, well, on what basis do you make that truth claim? If, 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 if as you believe, we're just all random stardust bumping into each other, it's all random and nothing is, right? What basis do you have? You, you have no basis to make that truth claim. So he's exposing sort of how, how you know, they'll, they'll have these pieces in their worldview, but they don't fit together and they can't fit together and they can't make truth claims even though people make truth claims all the time. So his point is, is he, he'll, his, what he's driving at is they're Christians, non, sorry, non-Christians do this. They steal from our worldview <laughs> all the time. So they'll make truth claims and they'll say, well, he'll, he'll just point out like, you really don't have any basis for that. You don't have any basis to say this is right or this is wrong. Your worldview doesn't account for that. Only the Christian worldview accounts for that. So he's exposing their presuppositions and trying to, and, and that's a way of helping them see like, no, actually you're right. This doesn't make sense. Like this isn't, this doesn't fit together. And it oftentimes it's self-contradictory. Um, this is more of a, of a why, why apologetics. And uh, to use a, a biblical metaphor of uh, we're gospel to God, you know, the world is at war. Yeah. Yeah. And he has saved us and then called us ambassadors. So in a sense, we're trying to establish peace talks. <laughs> and, and apologetics is the means by which we establish the terms of peace, truth, 
has to, is, is a comic and, and cannot be surrendered or compromised. You know, and so we, we distill down the essentials so that we can then engage, if you will, the conversation of evangelism yeah. within the parameters of, of the conditions that God has established. Yeah. And let's remember that the condition is total surrender. Exactly. <laughs> Unconditional surrender. Last comment, then we need to pray and, yeah. and scooch. What? Yes. 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 Okay. I think I stole this from my, from my daughter's apologetics class because it was something laying on the table and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I don't think I even read it completely, but um, it just fits so well. Um, if you are in a spaceship and you're trying to decide, do I want to live on Earth or Venus? And you're trying to, you know, evaluate like which one's better to live on. Well, which one did everything come from in your spaceship? Everything <laughs> came from Earth. So you're trying to say, well, I'm trying to make a valid, you know, well, if you're going to live in Venus, which doesn't have such stuff to sustain life, you're going to have to borrow it all from Earth and bring yes. it to Venus and build your your um, your colony there. But you're still borrowing it all. Correct. From Earth in the same way, and I think that that was that was I think from her apologetics class, and I like I would have known when I was going to meet it this morning. I would have read about it, but um, it was just the picture of like, yeah, if you are arguing, you know, like for truth or what's true, where are you getting that from? Are you borrowing that from actually from you know how far can they go? Right. Because they can't really live on Venus. Correct. That doesn't logically it doesn't logically work it doesn't evidentially work and also they're presuppositionally stealing from our they're stealing from earth it gets back to the van till's argument for who's a presuppositionalist we're not only trying to show that earth is the better place to live we're showing that venus is not you can't live on venus impossible this is a poisonous planet <laughs> right so it's a great picture to put it all together for us yeah you correct correct you can't escape it yeah that's good well let me pray we'll pick up next time we're going to talk um in greater depth about what is truth how do faith and reason connect and how does the holy spirit help us but then we really need to we're going to uh, get into why we can trust the Bible and the historical reliability of the Gospels. Yeah, I think you probably could benefit something, maybe. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you and, and praise you for the truth. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself. We wouldn't know you unless you had. Lord, there's a limit to what we can learn about you from creation and general revelation. And so we thank you for your word and we thank you ultimately for revealing yourself to us in Jesus Christ. Pray God that we would never uh, step foot off of our sure foundation of Christ and his word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to grow in our understanding of, of you and your word and of truth. Lord Jesus, that as we engage with people around us, that you would help us to do it with gentleness and respect. Lord, we want to see uh, other people come to faith in Christ, and we want to um, see our fellow Christians, including ourselves, built up in the faith. So we pray to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.